At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. When we talk about the new normal in Galatians 1 and 2, what we're talking about is the new that Jesus normalized. When Jesus came to this earth and he lived his life and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, he did not merely come to add another couple of laws to an already established religion, but he came to actually create a new normal, a new covenant, a new arrangement by which you and I might relate to God. And in Galatians 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to his friends in Galatia where he describes to them the, the details of this, this new covenant relationship and how that played out in their lives. And it's preserved for us so that we might read it and understand how it plays out in our lives as well. And we've been walking through this over the last month or so, and we've got a few more weeks. Today, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. But before we look at those four verses together, I want to think just for a moment about a word that we're familiar with, even if we don't know that we're familiar with this word. It's actually not an English word, it's a Greek word, and that is the word orthos. Now, the word orthos in Greek means straight or correct. Now, you might not speak Greek, but I'm guessing that you're familiar with orthos, meaning straight or correct. Now, you might not be aware of it by itself, but when you put it in front of a number of other terms, it begins to make a lot more sense to us, right? So when you think about orthos, orthodontist, right? What does an orthodontist do? Just ask a middle schooler, right? What does an orthodontist do? Straightens our teeth, corrects our bite. That's what an orthodontist does. Orthos, straight or correct, dentist with our teeth. Another way that this is used is an orthopedist. What does an orthopedist do? Well, they... They straighten or correct broken bones and ligaments, things like that. They, they put casts on stuff. They do surgeries to connect things that are disconnected and should be connected inside of our bodies. Uh, this is what, what we do. So we're, we're familiar with this word orthos attached to a number of other terms, especially as it relates to medical words. But what's interesting is in the passage that we're going to look at today, we actually see this word orthos added to another word to create an arrangement that we don't often see. And that arrangement is the phrase orthowalking. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14, this phrase is, is given that, that there's a correct or straightened way of walking that we need. Uh, Paul says it in, in the English Standard Version that I'm using here. It is a little obscured, so I've bolded it and underlined it so that you can see where it's used. But he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw that their conduct was not living out the truth that they believed, when I saw that they were not in a straight line with God's will and God's way, Paul called them out. And who he called out here was none other than the Apostle Peter. But what we see inside of this is a reminder that more than just our teeth and more than just our bones and ligaments are out of line. Our very lives are as well, right? I don't need to illustrate that too much for you, for you to understand that your life is a little crooked. You've lived long enough. You, you've tried to navigate 
your life enough that you understand that you're a little broken, that you're a little out of alignment? Well, how is it that our lives might be brought back into line? Well, what Paul reminds us of is that our lives are brought back into line. We can ortho-walk when we are put into not braces or a retainer, but when our lives come in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just something to tickle our minds or to warm our hearts, but ultimately it's something to change the way our hands and our feet operate. And so we're going to see over the next three Sundays as we conclude this series together how it is that our lives can be ortho-walked, can be aligned with the truth of the gospel. Today we're going to see the problem that came in this area specifically as it related to the Apostle Peter. But then the next two weeks we're going to see how it is that you and I might be encouraged, as Paul encouraged Peter, to have our lives come into alignment with Christ. So, with all that said, and without any further delay, let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. If you've got a Bible open there, we're going to spend the balance of our time in these four verses today. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and make a few observations. Galatians 2, verse 11, Paul writes and says this. He says, But when Cephas, another word for Peter, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, friends, in those four short verses, we're going to see two things today that will help us to understand the problem of why we're living out of alignment and set us up to see the hope of the gospel to align us in the next two weeks. Well, what do we see? The first thing that we see is this. We believe more than we live. We believe more than we live. Now, you understand that, right? I mean, when I say that, at some level, it just kind of resonates inside of us. There are things that we believe. There are things that we could articulate. There are questions we could get right on the test. But us living them out consistently in our lives is hard. And there is a gap often between what we believe and how we live. Now, that gap and that challenge is something that is not unique to you. If you look up and down the aisle and the people in front of you and behind you, they all struggle with that also. And not just those of us who live in this era and age, but also people who have lived throughout history struggle with the same thing, and including people with real famous names like the Apostle Peter, first name Apostle, last name Peter, that guy also struggled. And we see that inside of Galatians 2, 11 to 14. So where do we see that related to Peter's life? Well, before we get to that, it's helpful again for us to just remember where we are inside of Paul's letter to his friends in Galatia. Paul wrote this letter, and at the beginning of that letter, he said, I want you Galatians to know that the message that I am sharing and the ministry that I am partaking in is not my idea. Paul says, I didn't invent it, and I didn't apply for it, but Jesus Christ came to me and set me apart as an apostle. My ministry came from him. And also, Paul says, the message I proclaim, I didn't learn from another human, but I learned it from Jesus himself. And we see that 
as Paul opens his letter. In Galatians 1.1, he says that he's an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. And then he says of his message that the message is about Jesus, it's from Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And because this message came from Jesus, no one was to change it. Now, when Paul talks about this message that, that came from Jesus. Again, the, the first objection that we might have is, how is it that Paul got that message from Jesus himself? Because Paul was not one of the original 12. So something must have happened for Paul to have a face-to-face with Jesus. Paul's come to Jesus meeting was real, and it led to a significant change in his life. And Jesus instructed Paul in the truth of the gospel. Paul asserted that through a timeline of his history that he he went through in chapters 1 and 2. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking at Paul's personal story to articulate the fact that the gospel came from Jesus directly to Paul. Paul talks about how he he was converted along Damascus Road, and then he didn't go down and enroll in seminary under Peter and James and John's tutelage, but instead he went to Arabia and then to Damascus. He stopped by Jerusalem to have a cup of coffee, but he didn't join their school. And then he went on to Syria, uh, to Antioch, and then he came back to Jerusalem ultimately in the events that we saw last week in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. But what we saw throughout that entire period was over about 10 years, Paul's theology was solidified in a separate and parallel stream from what was happening with Peter and James and John in Jerusalem. What we saw last week was when Paul got to Jerusalem, he and Peter and James and John compare notes, and what they saw was the gospel they were proclaiming was the exact same gospel, that people could have access to God directly through Jesus, and they didn't have to become a Jew first. It was Jesus who gave himself for their sins. It was Jesus who came to deliver them from this present evil age. And that same message was the message that Peter and James and John were preaching in Jerusalem and that Paul and his friends were preaching in Antioch. That shouldn't surprise us because it came from the same source, Jesus himself. In the verses that we just read, though, in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, what we see is the next things that happened in history. One of those things that happened was that Paul and Barnabas and their crew, Titus, go back up to Antioch. We're talking about Antioch of Syria here. And when they get there, they begin to do their their ministry thing and their church thing, and they're reaching their community. And Peter comes up to take a visit. I'm guessing that when Paul and Barnabas and Titus were describing their church in Antioch to Peter, Peter was like, that sounds really cool. It sounds like God's doing some amazing stuff in that church. And so Peter goes to visit the church in Antioch to see with his own eyes what the Lord was doing. And those are the events that are found there. Now, we'll look at what happened there in just a moment, but that's the timeline that we're on. Now, after that event in Antioch, there's another event that is not in the book of Galatians because it hadn't happened yet. I think the book of Galatians was written in about 48 A.D., But in 49 AD, there would be this significant event that would happen in Jerusalem that was known as the Jerusalem Council. And Acts chapter 15 details that, where the church leaders come together and they actually take a vote to decide what will be the fate of the Gentiles. 
Do they need to become Jews in order to be saved? They eventually take a vote. They eventually pray about it, and they come to the conclusion that the message that they were preaching would be the message that stands because it came from Jesus. They weren't going to change it. They weren't going to require the Gentiles to become Jews, and they formalized that in Acts chapter 15. Again, those events are not in the book of Galatians, but they're coming in the days shortly after this letter was written. And so what we see here is Paul's timeline of the development of this message that he was proclaiming and the establishment of his ministry. But this morning, I don't want us to talk about Paul as much as I want us to talk about Peter. If this is the timeline and the places where Paul's theology was formed, where was Peter's theology formed? And not just in general, where was Peter's theology of Gentiles being connected to God, where did that come from? Well, where did it come from? Who did it come from? It came from Jesus himself, right? But we see that play out in Peter's life. So let's look at Peter's timeline. See, Peter grew up Jewish. And as a, a Jew living at, at, at that age, he would have believed that the only way for someone to connect to God would be through becoming a Jew. And so that was his way of thinking. And there was a stark division between Jew and Gentile in Peter's day. That's, that's how he grew up. That was the old covenant, old era life that he was living. But then he met Jesus. And when Peter met Jesus, he began to see Jesus interacting in a different way than, than Peter's mama and daddy had interacted with people. As a matter of fact, he saw uh, Jesus loving people regardless of where they were from. He would see a a woman at the well who was a Samaritan, and he would stop and talk to her and give her grace and hope and life. And he would see a Roman centurion, and he would offer healing to that person and his family and household, right? Jesus was, was someone who was loving and extending the love of God beyond the borders of the nation of Israel, so much so that when Jesus dies and raises from the dead, before he ascends to heaven, he gives a great commission to his disciples. And he says, listen, this message is not to stay here. This message is to go there. They say, where is it supposed to go? Everywhere. Not just in Jerusalem and not just in Judea and not even just in Samaria, but all the way to the ends of the earth. Guys, that's what Jesus said. This message is to go all the way out there. And so Peter has this beginning to change his perspective. Well, after that, the next thing that happened was the event of Pentecost. Jesus said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until my power comes upon you to enable you to do this mission. And so the disciples stayed in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 2, we see this event where the Holy Spirit comes to reside in the hearts of the 12 disciples. And when the Holy Spirit shows up, suddenly Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples are able to speak a language that they had never learned so that everybody in Jerusalem at that time could hear the gospel in their own language. Now that would be a memorable day, right? And so it reinforced what Jesus had told them, that this was a message for all people. The Spirit shows up, and they're able to take that message to all people, at least in that city. But then some time goes on. Peter continues his life in ministry. There was that blip of Pentecost. There were a few things that were happening, but for the most part, Peter is ministering to other Jewish background people. But then in Acts 10, Peter has a dream. And in that dream or vision, Jesus reveals to him that he is to suddenly move towards the Gentiles. And through a very descriptive vision, 
he finds out that he's supposed to go to the home of a specific Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And so Peter wakes up from his dream or vision, and there's a knock at the door. Peter opens the door, and there's a couple of people from Cornelius' house. They say, I think you're supposed to come with us. And Peter's like, "Uh, okay, let me grab my things. And so Peter grabs his stuff, and he takes off. And they go to Cornelius' house. Now, this is years after his experience with Jesus, and years after the coming of the Spirit, Peter shows up at Cornelius' house. You know what Peter said when he got there? What do you think he would say? Well, we think that he would say, Cornelius, I had a dream about you. That that would be the first thing out of his mouth. This is amazing that we're here. I love this moment. Instead, you know what Peter said? I've never been in one of your houses before. Now, that's a great introduction. It was still so foreign to him. He was beginning to understand the truth, but his practice still lagged far behind. Well, after that event, he shares the gospel. Cornelius and his household trust Christ. The Spirit comes. Peter cannot deny what has happened. He goes back to his buddies at Jerusalem and has a conversation with them and tells them what happened and has to defend his showing up at these folks' house and, and eating at that table. And, and, but, it, but at the end of that conversation, they say, we can't deny what you're telling us. Apparently, God is in the Gentile business now. And so their minds began to shift. Well, after all of those events, at, at some point, we have Peter going up to Antioch and interacting in Antioch uh, with the folks in the, in the encounter that we see in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Again, we'll look at that in a moment, but that interaction was both good and bad, and we'll see why in a minute. And then there was the Jerusalem Council where it seems like things are a little more resolved. But, but here's what I, what I want us to see. From this moment here to this moment here was a period of about 20 years. The Jerusalem Council event was in 49 A.D., Jesus' ministry, the late 20s, early 30s, about 20 years of development. So throughout that time, Peter's beliefs are getting locked in, but his life still had a gap between what he believed and how he lived. So if we were to ask Peter throughout this process, Peter, tell us what you believe. Just just tell us what you believe about Gentiles. What would he have said? Well, he might have said some of these things and recounted some of these memories. He might have said, I remember when we saw this Samaritan woman at a well and Jesus was interacting with her, that that Jesus said to her that we would not connect to God through a temple in a city, but we were to connect to God directly through spirit, through what Jesus would do. Jesus said to that woman, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Peter would have remembered that. He might have shared that as part of this connection that Gentiles might have. Peter also might have talked about his experience after his time with Cornelius when he said this, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter might have said, after that Cornelius experience, I understood that God didn't prefer Jew over Gentile any longer. I couldn't make that argument. What else would Peter might have said? Well, he might have thought about that in 
interaction he had back in Jerusalem after the experience with Cornelius, where they concluded, they, they heard these things and they fell silent and they glorified God saying, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, Peter might have articulated these things as what he believed about Gentiles and their access to God. He might have talked about his friend Paul and the ministry that he had among Gentiles and how he saw nothing that he would add to that ministry in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6 because he believed that Gentiles could have direct access to God, not becoming a Jew first. And Peter might have even thought if we'd have given him enough time of the events right after the book of Galatians, he would have talked about what James said on the day of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 that it's my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Not trouble them with what? Not trouble them with requiring them to become a Jew. See, that's what Peter believed. That's how he would have answered the test on paper. That, that's, that's what would have made the doctrinal statement, right? But how did Peter live that out? Well, friends, the honest answer is that he lived it out imperfectly. It was a challenge. And we see one such instance of how challenging it was for him to live that out in Galatians 2. See, in in Galatians 2, verses 11 and 12, we have this description. But when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, Peter just just called him out, said, uh, Paul just called him out and said, Peter, you're sinning. You stand condemned. There's no defense for your actions. Well, what did Peter do that was so egregious that Paul would call him out? Not in private, but in public. Well, Paul tells us. What Peter had done was he had acted inappropriately related to his new Gentile friends. It says, For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, think about this. When we read this, we go, why did Peter shy back away after the people from Jerusalem came? But that's not how first century people would have thought about it. You know how a first century person would have thought of this? They would have looked at this and said, why did Peter sit down at that table in the first place? Right? Jews don't eat with Gentiles. They had all kinds of ways to avoid that. They they thought it made them unclean. They thought that it was something that was not pleasing to God. So a first century person would have seen Peter separate, and they would have thought that action just shows that Jesus' coming just kept more of the same going on. That Jews have this hope in Jesus, but Gentiles, I guess, must not have full access. They must be second class. They must have to sit at the kids' table while the Jews get to sit at the big table. You ever have that at your Thanksgiving table? There's the the grown-up table and the kid table. The grown-up table gets, you know, great food and the kid table. Maybe there's some chicken nuggets. I don't know what's over there. But, but, you know, you think about that, that division. It was possible that they were thinking in that moment of time that maybe this is what Christianity is all about. The the Jews will have a better opportunity than the Gentiles. And it was mirrored in the way that Peter was living his life. Peter would have had the right answer. He would have had the right belief. 
but he was living the wrong life. He believed more than he was living. Now, is that an issue for us? Is that something that that you and I would struggle with? Well, maybe, but probably not in this specific. I would say that all of us at some level struggle with this thought. All of us struggle with the fact that we believe more than we live. Right? Let's just be honest. Peter's not the only one who can be carried away because of a fear of what other people might think. Peter's doctrinal statement wasn't in jeopardy, but his behavior was manipulated by his fear of another man. Do we ever do that? Sometimes we do it just because our desires are even greater. But what does it look like for us? Let's think about some things. One area that I want to talk about this in is in the relation of race. Now, when we see this events play out, very specifically, we understand that Peter was struggling with some behavior that would have had plenty of racist overtones. Peter was making a determination about how acceptable it was to hang out with someone just because of their ethnicity and their background. Peter could have given the right answer to the question, is that Gentile person in Antioch valuable to God? Peter would have said, absolutely, they're created in the image of God. They could have asked Peter, does that person have the same access to God through Jesus Christ that you do? Peter would have said, absolutely, they do. All of our hope is in Jesus. It's not in being Jewish or being Gentile. And they would have said, have you, have you ever had any experience where this wasn't the case? He'd say, absolutely, I went into Cornelius' house and I saw this thing happen. And, and it's very clear to me that, that that person is created in the image of God and regardless of their ethnicity and regardless of their background, they have equal access to God through Christ. He absolutely would have had the right answers to the question. His beliefs were spot on. But the reality is there was a gap in this instance between what he believed and how he lived. And regardless of his intentions, it had a negative impact on his brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, I'm not saying here today that everyone in this room is racist. That's a, a thought that is out there in our culture that some, somehow everyone is a racist. I'm not saying that's the case, but I am just asking us to search our own hearts. Is there a gap between what we believe and how we live in our treatment of people, regardless of their ethnicity? I think we need to ask that question. Second area we might think about is in the area of sexuality. There are many, many people who would get all the right answers as far as what is an expression of correct sexuality or right sexuality or righteous sexuality. They would say that you know, sex is a gift that God gives between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in marriage. And that in that context, it is wonderful and beautiful, but outside of that context, it can be painful and hurtful and and cause all kinds of pain and problems that God does not desire for us. Now, we might get that right answer, but how many people who have that right answer also still struggle with pornography or with wandering eyes? See, we can have a gap between what we believe and how we live Same thing would be true of materialism. How many people could give the right answer that no thing will ever satisfy my soul? No thing will ever make me completely happy. 
And yet we live our lives always buying that next thing, hoping to make us happy. See, friends, the reality is there's a gap between what we believe and how we live. Let's just be honest. It's there. Now, I I could keep going and give more illustrations, but I think you understand where I'm headed. And when we think about this, how do we explain that? Uh, John Hanna, a professor of mine at seminary, says this. He says, we're all simultaneously very mature and immature. We account for the difference by the change in topic, right? In other words, if we give enough topics, eventually we will find some areas where we believe more than we live. But what do we do with that? That's a reality that Peter faced, that you and I face. What do we do with that? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is just acknowledge that that gap between what we believe and how we live has consequences. There are consequences related to that gap. Now, oftentimes, when we think of the consequences that are related to that gap, we immediately think of the consequences between us and God. In other words, we sin, and that causes a separation between us and God. And it, and it might even cause not just a, the, this vertical between us and God, but also it might sear our conscience and we might feel this sense of guilt. And that's true, and that's a part of the consequence of sin. But in this particular instance, in Galatians 2, What I see here is that there's another consequence of sin that we sometimes forget, but we shouldn't. A consequence of sin that is not vertical, but it's actually horizontal. Well, where do we see that? We see that as it plays out in verses 13 and 14. What were the consequences of Peter's behavior? Well, it says, says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In other words, Peter cast such a big shadow that others started doing what Peter did. WWPD, I guess, right? They, they just started doing what Peter was doing. And so they, they said, if Peter doesn't think it's okay to eat with Gentiles, then maybe it's not okay to eat with Gentiles. So Barnabas even gets up and walks away. And Paul is watching this unfold, and he goes, this is a travesty. It's a travesty. It's a travesty not because of just something that is happening vertically, but it's a travesty because what is happening horizontally. That behavior is going to put a schism in the church. That behavior is going to put a separation between Jew and Gentile inside the believing community that the church might not recover from. John Stott would make this statement. He says, if Paul had not taken his stand against Peter that day, either the whole Christian church would have drifted into a Jewish backwater and stagnated, Or there would have been a permanent rift between Gentile and Jewish Christendom. One Lord, but two Lord's tables. It was a big deal. It was a big moment. The consequence of Peter's behavior was he was leading others to model it. And as that was happening, it was causing a division in the church. So Paul speaks up and he says, Peter, what are you doing? You, in your Jewishness, are not able to be good enough in your Jewishness to have a relationship with God and to have this righteousness delivered to you. You need Jesus. Why would you go to a Gentile and have them be an imperfect Jew like you? Why not just connect them straight to the one who is perfect in Jesus himself? Paul calls him out. And when we think about this, these two components that I mentioned earlier, there's a vertical component of the consequence of our gap between our belief and our behavior. And that is the the challenge that comes with God, and and that's real, and and we need to confess that, and we need to have short accounts with God, and we need to have that forgiveness 
But also, friends, if we live a life of disobedience, there is a horizontal issue. Our sin does not just impact us as much as we want to think that, but ultimately impacts those around us. It hurts them as well. Peter's sin impacted the church in Antioch. Our sin impacts the people who are close to us and who are in our lives. It's part of the reason why it needs to be dealt with. Now, when we think about these two components of sin and its consequences, as it relates to the vertical component, we need to remember that that was dealt with at the cross. Jesus' death took the wrath of God concerning our sin and satisfied it so that you and I can be be square with God. Our sins can be totally forgiven with Him. That was dealt with once and for all time as Jesus died on the cross and, and becomes appropriated to our lives as we trust in Him. But friends, the horizontal component of our sin is something that we deal with every day. The outflow of our sin in the lives of our, of our children and of our spouse and of our roommate and of our friends is something that causes real ripples and pain and problems that we're always wrestling with, that we're always trying to come to grips with. See, friends, we need to remember, we need to remember this connection. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I want to just point out a few things that we can do in response to this. When we understand this gap between what we believe and how we live, the first thing we need to do is just confess. Confess to God that we believe more than we live. We have better answers than we have a life sometimes, right? Just change the category to the right spot. We can give the right answer on the test, but we have a difficult time living that out. Let's not hide that from the God who knows everything. Let's just go before him and confess it. Confess the gap is there. Second thing, know that this gap can confuse and hurt others. Let's own it and acknowledge it. My sinfulness negatively impacts those around me. Now, we are easy to see that in the lives of others, right? So-and-so's sinfulness negatively impacts me. The the, the child that's been abused, the spouse that's been been abused, we we, we understand that in those situations. It's easy to see it in others. But the reality is, if we are all sinners, which we are, and if there's a gap between what we believe and how we live, which there is, then that has a negative impact on those around us. Let's acknowledge that as well. There might be someone we need to talk to and Confess and ask for their forgiveness and seek some reconciliation on. We may be square in the vertical, but our horizontal has got some challenges in this moment and in this day. Know that. The third thing, allow the gospel to straighten us. Again, our hope for alignment and correction is not found in a retainer or braces or a cast. It's found in the work of Jesus Christ who helps ortho us into alignment with his truth. How does he do that? How does the gospel do that? We're going to see that the next two weeks. So you got to come back to find the answer. But today, let's, let's wrestle with the fact that this gap exists. And let's understand that our hope ultimately is found in Christ. There's a consequence in this gap. Now, I want to, I want to just have one last thought. You know, we, we, we began here. You might be here this morning, you might be watching online, and you might be wrestling with this issue. You feel out of alignment, you feel broken or crooked, and you want to be put back straight. 
And I said, come back next week. That was a terrible thing to say as a preacher. But let me, let me, just, let me just give you this encouragement. You don't have to wait for me. Jesus is there for you today in this moment. Trust in him and the gospel will begin that process of transformation. In an instant, in a moment, we're square in the vertical. And over time, there's transformation in the horizontal. Come to Christ, there's hope there. And we'll find out exactly what that hope looks like in the next two weeks. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for this truth and your word. We thank you that we have the opportunity to connect with you, the God who created us. We pray that we would be a people um, who would, over time and growth over time, that we would increasingly um, have a smaller gap between our belief and our living. But we know that that gap will never close completely, certainly not on our own. So we pray that you would just help us to be dependent upon you, on your grace and mercy and forgiveness. And, Father, that we would see um, just your transformation take place in our church and in our lives. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen.